Welcome to Kicking It With The K-Train, talking with people who help me keep an eye on my vision. Hey everyone, my name is Kyle Kuhn. I'm a totally blind US Paralympian author and speaker. Um, I've been pretty fortunate to live a full and adventurous life. Um, you could say that I have been pretty successful, um, but I definitely could not have done it without the help of some really incredible people. Um, so on this podcast, I'm going to introduce you to many of the people who have helped shape me into the person that I am today. Um, and you know, these are the people um, that really help me keep an eye on my vision. And maybe through hearing their stories, uh, they can help you as well. So let's get started. Huge shout out to my personal partners who help support my adventure athlete career. Um, massive, massive thanks to Bubba Burger. You'll never bite a burger better than a Bubba. Um, straight from the freezer to either the grill or the stovetop, you guys. Um, I've been eating Bubba's for over 20 years. I mean, that's the majority of my life. And hands down, this is the best burger out there. So go check out BubbaFoods.com and uh, check out the store locator to see where you can get your favorite variety of Bubba today. Thanks so much to Infinite Performance Nutrition. Um, take your nutrition personally. Hydration and protein, um, custom tailored for your unique recovery, uh, tastes, sweat rate, um, you know, your training, your goals, you know, and, and your lifestyle. Um, you guys, I, I've been using Infinite since uh, before the Paralympics in 2021, and right now I can't imagine using uh, anything else. Um, they keep me fueled through every workout and every race. So uh, check out infinitenutrition.us, I-N-F-I-N-I-T, nutrition.us, and uh, use the code COON15, that's C-O-O-N-1-5, for 15% off your order. I am super excited to bring on Synergy Wetsuits as my 2024 swim partner. You guys, swimming has not been my forte, and as such, I've always been on the lookout for an incredible wetsuit, and I finally found it in Synergy. I am particularly love wearing sleeveless wetsuits, and Synergy has really gone out of their way to create a top tier sleeveless wetsuit uh, but guys they don't just make wetsuits they have all kinds of awesome swim accessories and triathlon apparel so go check them out www.synergywetsuits.com that's s-y-n-e-r-g-y wetsuits.com and be sure to use the code kyle coon that's k-y-l-e-c-o-o-n at checkout for 15 percent off
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Kicking It with the K-Train, where I chat with people who have helped me keep an eye on my vision. I don't know if I have the success in my life without um, one particular organization that it came into my life probably about uh, just uh, just under 15 years ago. And uh, I am very excited to have on the Director of Instruction and Training at The Seeing Eye. Uh, I believe it is the oldest guide dog school or the original guide dog school in the U.S. and possibly in North America. <laughs> um, I am really um, humbled and honored to have on Mr. Dave Johnson on the show today. Dave, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Kyle. And we are we're not only the oldest in North America, we're the oldest in the world. I was gonna I was gonna say like I, I, <laughs> I, I love it. because yeah. uh, I yeah, I, I know it because I, I know that um you know guide dogs were you know being trained for you know German World War One veterans, but I, I wasn't sure if any of those schools over in Europe were still operational or no, or actually, if, you know, there's a whole lot of history to that and yeah. and um, sometimes, and it, I kind of wince when people say it, some people say the seeing eye is the oldest existing. Well, if we're not existing, we're not. So, but, right, right. Um, because the Germans did start it, but they were government schools that collapsed after World War One, mm. And uh, so there were no schools. There's a, there's a school in Italy that is about six months younger than us. Oh, wow. We, we, we were pretty close in age. Yeah. Yeah, but um, we uh, we created the industry in this country, and uh, you know the model uh, Lucas Frank, um, who's an icon in the industry and has worked for us until uh, last month. Yeah, um, just retired with forty five years in the saddle here, and it was quite a historian, and he could trace the roots of every school in the United States to someone who had started at the CNI. He did a family wow. tree. Yeah, wow. Because, you know, people move along in the industry. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But yeah. yeah, let's let's go ahead and just let's dive right in. Uh, since you know the look, the Seeing Eye is, as you said, the the oldest guide dog school, you know, in the world, and you know, it started way back in you know you know nineteen twenty nine. So why don't why don't you give us the you know thirty thousand foot view of how how did yeah. the Seeing Eye get started and and what is give us a little bit of the history. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might have to give me a polite nudge to stop me because there's a lot to that, say. But that's but, all right. That's all right. Know, <laughs> we've got we've got a really interesting history. And um, back in the 1920s, one of our co-founders uh, was a woman named Dorothy Harrison Eustace, and Dorothy was actually a uh, Philadelphian living in Vevey, Switzerland. Um, she was a philanthropist. Um, and she had a very keen interest in the German Shepherd dog. And uh, I, I guess you go, so what, German Shepherds, it's a breed of dog. But it's interesting if you think back to the 1920s, the, the breed was still being developed back then. So not all German Shepherds then looked like the German Shepherd of today. And what she, what Dorothy had an interest in doing was developing the breeds so that they were consistent in looks and that they continued to work. She really wanted to preserve the breed as working dogs. So she was uh, collecting breeding stock in Europe. And because she was a woman of great means, 
she filmed everything she did. So we have not only uh, black and white photography of her stock, which looks very much like our breeding stock of today, but we also, sh she has real films, R-E-E-L, you know, real to real. <laughs> yep, yep. Black and whites that she filmed. Um, and she would actually use the films to evaluate her dogs because she'd be mm. out there gating the dogs for somebody who was filming. And then she'd go back and review the films to review the dogs. Very interesting for its time. She was uh, contacted by, the, by uh, the publication of the day, the Saturday Evening Post. And they thought she was a good story to tell, a fun story to tell about what she was doing with German Shepherd dogs. And, you know, the dogs she was breeding were going to the Red Cross as ambulance dogs and to the to the Swiss Army. And they were doing all kinds of great things with them. But Dorothy, being the human being that she was, didn't really want to talk about herself. She kind of wanted to detract about herself. So instead, she said she wanted to tell about how the Germans had been training German shepherds to guide their World War I veterans. And, and um, there were a lot of them, and a lot of, of war-blinded men because mustard gas was the tool of the time and the Germans blinded their own soldiers with the gas as well. Um, if you go back in history, you'll see a lot of artwork um, and, and even, even photographs of uh, blinded veterans traveling with their heads bandaged, their eyes bandaged, you know, following each other in a straight line with a hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them. And there were so many of them that, that, that the German government decided um, through, through the auspices of a, a couple leaders, you know, who knew, had an interest in training dogs, um, they started these schools. And I, I think the first one was Oldenburg in 19, Oldenburg, Germany, that is in 1916. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing all this work. Dorothy, Dorothy watched it um, and she wrote the article about that and she called it The Seeing Eye. And um, we we have copies of everything here at The Seeing Eye. We have a, a hallway of history and a, a Morris Frank dining room. I'll get into that a little bit. But it's yep. an area where we, we store, you know, all this historical stuff and have it framed. And her article is down there um, with photographs of, of the Germans and the dogs and I will tell you the the training was much less refined back in those days, <laughs> and the dogs and and the breeding wasn't the same. The dogs looked um, a lot of the dogs looked scared to me in the photographs that I saw. Yeah. Uh, so Dorothy, um, you know, wrote the article. It, it was released in the Saturday Evening Post, and um, here's where you know the woman who tried to detract from what she was doing. Here's where it became serendipitous. Um, the, the article came back here, was read by everybody, and anyone who had a visually impaired uh, relative read it to that relative to tell them about that, you know, how great this is. Look at this woman who's, you know, allegedly training dogs to li lead blind people. And <laughs> Dorothy, Dorothy receives over 200 letters, you know, begging her to train a dog for, for them. And she's like, oh, my gosh, what's happened here? And, and there was a person, one of the letters stood out. Um, and that was the letter from our second co-founder. And it was a young man named Morris Frank. And Morris was probably, I think he was 18 at the time that he wrote. He uh, was from Nashville, Tennessee. His mother was blind. Um, he had a younger brother who was blind and, and uh, succumbed to disease, did not survive. 
But Morris was adventistically blind from two accidents. It's like a real unlucky guy. Um, when he was when he was like four or five, he was horseback riding and took a stick in the eye. Uh, uh, and I might not have his age right. He was young though. Yeah. And he, he he got a stick in the eye riding on a horse, and um, he was an active young man, and he continued to try and function as as normally as he could. And and as a teen, he was blinded in a boxing accident where, you know, took a blow to the head and it detached his optic nerve. And that was that. So he was totally blind. Mm -hmm. And he was desperate to be independent, absolutely desperate. Um, he was trying to sell uh, insurance door to door to make a living in, in Nashville. And um, a little known fact is that there people weren't trained with white canes back in those days if you happened to use a cane or a, a stick for a probe it was because you invented it yourself that wasn't until world war ii that we started training people who were blind with with the white cane tool yep. and so morris was um using what we call today sighted guides or human guides he was hi mm -hmm. hiring kids to follow around he'd put a hand on the shoulder and let them take him door to door to sell his insurance and um, it wasn't working so well. You know, people were not comfortable. Um, they didn't understand blindness at the time. People who were uh, blind or visually impaired were thought to be less of a human being. Um, it's just the way things were. Yep. So they wouldn't answer the door when they saw a blind guy standing there. Or um, some of the kids were known to get him to pay up front and then, you know, take the money and run and leave him on a doorstep. So when he heard of Dorothy training these dogs, he's like, I, this would be the answer, you know, from God for me to yeah. have a, be independent again. So the difference between his letter and the other 199 or whatever it was that Dorothy got was, he's the person who said, if you shall do this for me, I'll come back to the United States, show everybody how this can be done and we'll start a school here. And, and, and so it began. Um, so Dorothy um, took him up on the offer. Um, what was unique about her was she was so into the German Shepherd breed that she had a geneticist and trainer named Jack Humphrey. And mm -hmm. Jack had watched the Germans train. He developed his own training. He, he, he's the first, um, he was the guy. <laughs> he, he was the inventor of this whole thing. And um, of all the people in our history, um, there's a lot I would have liked to have met, but I, that's one person I, I just like long to have had a, a conversation <laughs> with for the things he saw and the things he thought he was self-taught as a, as everything he did as a geneticist. Yeah. And, and so Jack and Dorothy's husband each trained dogs because um, they knew that they couldn't just train one dog to match Morris and yep. getting, getting him to Europe was not easy. Um, because blind people were not known to travel independently in those days. Yep. <laughs> and now we're talking, you know, 1928. And yeah. <laughs> so um, they basically shipped him Federal Express to, not Federal, American Express to uh, over to Vevey um, because uh, th they didn't want to take him as a normal passenger. They, they, took him as actually as if he was livestock to get yeah. him over there. And so Morris arrived and um, they went through a process of matching him or, or learning who he was, how fast he wanted to walk 
And as you would know, Kyle, that not necessarily everybody knows is um, the key to being guided by a dog is that the dog actually pulls you and propels you so you can feel the dog's motion and follow the dog's motion. Correct. Uh, and, and the harness of, of that Buddy wore, the body piece was soft like the body piece we use today, but the handle was also loose and flaccid, almost like a leash, a, li- a little sturdier than a leash. Yep. So if the dog wasn't pulling, you weren't moving. You couldn't feel yeah. it. So um, through a, a series of evaluations, Boris, uh, Morris was matched to a dog named Kiss. And he, a female German Shepherd named Kiss. And he was kind of a tough guy. And um, <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to have no dog named Kiss. Right. So he changed her name to Buddy. And Morris um, had a succession of buddies in his life. Um, that was Buddy One. We refer to them by number. Yep. Um, but Buddy Six was alive when I came here in the early 80s when I started at the CI. Yep. And um, Morris was gone by then, and uh, his uh, widow, Lois, would board Buddy with us every now and again, and so I'd get to take care of her a little bit. Wow. Um, all the Buddies were females, except for Buddy number three, um, ah. his, only, his only male. And Buddy number three was used quite a bit by the Seeing Eye um, for photo ops, and uh, because he was a very handsome male. Mm-hmm. There, there is a photograph in the Morris Frank dining room of Morris striding down our driveway here uh, in Morristown with that dog. And that that black and white photograph was used to model a statue. Um, Seward Johnson, famous, famous sculptor, uh, did a painted bronze of Morris and Buddy that is in, on the green downtown in Morristown. Yep. And um, he did not depict the uh, statue as a male. There are ways you can tell that. Um, so that, that <laughs> it, more, it looks more like Buddy One, who was a sable. Um, but, uh, but in fact, it was Buddy Three that was used as the, gotcha. as the model. So um, Morris was trained in Vivet. And uh, true, true to Dor- Dorothy's form, she filmed all the training uh it still gives me the shivers to watch <laughs> the uh the real tapes of of that dog working and the things she did for him as the very first um the confidence that dog had the accuracy she had in traffic and traffic in Vivet 1928 was cars and uh horse and carriage it was it wasn't just motor cars you know so it was a whole different a whole different world. Yeah. So um, there was a sort of a, a famous meeting that was declared at the end of Morris's training where Dorothy and Jack sat, sat Morris down and uh, said to him, look, buddy is going to be of no use to you when you go back home, if you can't go anywhere. And Morris is saying, you know, what the heck are you talking about? Go nowhere. I'm going to go everywhere. And Dorothy reminded him that people had never seen such a thing as a, a dog guiding a human. Yeah. And that dogs weren't welcome everywhere and that he was going to have to be an advocate um, for people who were blind and for himself if, if, if this was to take off. 
though um, Morris was truly the very first advocate for people with guides. And he came back to the United States and he was really put through his paces. Um, he was challenged to cross West Street in New York City, which is known today as the West Side Highway, if that gives you any yep. inkling of what the roadway is like. It's insane, you know, that he crossed yeah. the way. And um, there were photographers everywhere and the photographers laughed and said we that they should have taken a taxi across the street so they would be safe when Morris's dog guided him safely and so on. Um, he, he, his MO was to try and sneak Buddy into places unobtrusively so that people wouldn't have the chance to object to her presence yep. and back in the day then um, they were known to have long white tablecloths and so so he'd get her into restaurants and get her under a tablecloth um, quietly for his meal and if if she went unnoticed the entire time he made sure that everybody saw him leave with her yep. so that they would know that there was a positive experience with a dog in the restaurant that was clean and well-behaved and actually doing a job. Um, in the instances where he got caught and challenged, um, he would agree to take Buddy outside and leave her outside. Mm -hmm. And uh, today you probe with your foot to feel a curb when she stops, when your dog stops for a landmark. Right. And you reach out with your right foot, feel what's in front of you and identify it and go forward from there. Yep. Back in those times, they used a very short cane um, held in the handler's right hand. Mm -hmm. It was about the, the length of a support cane today. And that was used as a probe. And um, over time, we stopped using it, obviously. But anyway, Morris, Morris used this cane and so when he'd leave Buddy outside, tired to a tree, tired to whatever he had to, he'd go back into these restaurants and he'd create a scene. Yep. He would bump into people who were dining. He would hit them with the cane, known to sweep the table with a cane, act, act like a bumbling idiot so that they would his, – his MO was to beg – have them beg him to go back and get the dog because he was successful with the dog but not the cane. Uh, so – you know, he did a lot of things. He was he was known to be foul mouthed and cantankerous. Yep. Those are the words that were used for him. He didn't like taking no for an answer, and and he'd go right back at people. And he really did pave the way, whether it was positive or negative at the time. But he yeah, he's the reason that we have access rights today. He was true to his word to Dorothy, um, and. He incorporated the CNI with her in 19 on, on January 29, 1929 in Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, that building still stands. There's a historical marker out there saying it's the first office of the CNI. Um, and they were, you know, Dorothy was still involved in the early days of the school. She was the first president of the school. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were running it in a smaller way in Nashville because they didn't have a facility. Uh, a place to train people so they were using doing hotel classes in very small numbers three and four people at a time and they were usually people of means um and they um true to the to our form today they paid 150 dollars for their first dog which was pretty expensive back in the 20s yeah and they paid 50 dollars for a replacement dog for their second dog on 
and um, we've we've kept that um, tradition up throughout. Um, we've we've Dorothy felt everybody should contribute to their rehabilitation in some way. Yep. And it's just a fraction of the cost. As you know, it costs us about $75,000 to train a unit, a pair, a human and a dog from yeah. birth, conception of the puppy to, to retirement. Um, and, and so the, the, the 50 and, and $150 are symbolic. Yes. Uh, so, so schools down there in, in Tennessee and they're doing the small classes in hotels and they realize that the, the climate in Tennessee is challenging. It's too hot a lot of the year. And so Dorothy had connections all over the place. And one of her best connections was with her friend, Willie Ebeling, who would become the second president of the CNI. And Willie, Willie was a German shepherd breeder who lived here in New Jersey in Lake Okanaka, which is, is not very far at all from the CNI uh, yep. today. And he, he was a good source of German shepherd dogs. Um, he helped her locate the property that they would buy and establish as our first school in Whippany, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I think it was 1931 we moved to, to Whippany. Um, that property was, I believe, 88 acres. Um, I regret I never got to see it. Um, yeah. It was, we moved to our current location on Washington Valley Road in Morris Township in 19, the year I was born, 1964. All right. We purchased the place in 63, occupied in 64, and uh, the Whippany, so we were in Whippany up to that point, to the point where we outgrew that property, and Whippany is about five miles outside of, of Morristown at most. Uh, it's probably five miles from our current campus, Right. and um, it was, we, we called it the house because it was a gigantic Victorian house. Um, the door of it is preserved and mounted against the wall in uh, the Morris Frank dining room because yep. it was symbolic of the number of people who were blind who walked through those door that door and beyond that it was an enormous enormous piece of art <laughs> that um, was the door it I think it's probably yeah. nine feet tall and six feet wide oh wow <laughs> uh, yeah just spectacular and it's solid oak and so people can go down and see the door and, and get a feel for what the building had to have been like. Um, and back in those days, the each in, there were two instructors teaching a class for you know close to four weeks, and uh, they each trained eight students at a time, which is just like unbelievable considering we train four at a time now. Yeah, and, you know. So there were 16 in a class back then, and we're at 20 to 24 now, depending upon how many are on the team. And, uh, it, it, you know, times were different. And we were not breeding all of our dogs back then. Mm -hmm. uh, we were taking donated dogs. Dorothy had, was bringing dogs from Europe. She was using dogs from her breeder friends here in the United States. Um, we started our own breeding program for the school. Um, Probably one of the most remarkable things about Dorothy is that she was a woman who was way, way, way ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. So she established traditions, practices um, in the 
in the 30s, 20s and 30s that we still use today because they were so timely and uh, or ahead of their time and now they're still so timely. She started an endowment that she backed herself. She built a board of trustees um, of great people of great wealth of the time, like Mrs. Etzel Ford, mm-hmm. who's and she got them to support the organization, build an endowment so that the CNI would continue. We'd have the monetary means. We are 100% philanthropy. Um, we, we get no government money. Um, so all, all of the money that we use to run this organization comes from the generosity of donors. So um, we were fundraisers of in the day. She built the endowment. She built the, the board of trustees. And they're trustees, not directors. Um, yep. So they don't tell us what to do. They, they offer their expertise in various areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, 25% of our, more than 25% of our board at the moment our graduates of the seeing eye, our board chair is a graduate right now. Yep. And so we have input, our, our graduate base has voice on our board of trustees. Um, and we get into the sixties, I'll jump backwards again, get into yep, the sixties. Yep. And we were so, you'll find I do that with our history. I kind of have to go back and forth sometimes. No, we that's were, the best. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, we were so wealthy that we were embarrassed for our wealth. Um, the the trustees had set up um, ruling that we could only draw five percent of the draw off the off the endowment of the interest to run the organization. When mm-hmm. I started, I think eighty two or eighty three. I can't remember which which year it was on the annual report. I think we were making, we were spending about $4.4 million a year back then okay. budgetarily. And we're at 31 now, 31 million a year to do, to do what we do. Um, what we do is expensive and we don't apologize for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and times have changed. So it, it, it really is expensive. We, sure. we, do, we do more than we ever have. Um, but anyway, we were raising all this money. We get into the sixties and we become embarrassed for our wealth. We start giving money away. Uh, we became, uh, we weren't a foundation, but we were giving money to foundations. Mm-hmm. Anybody who was working with people who were blind, um, anybody who was working with dogs, studying dogs, bettering dog health. Um, today's prescription diets, Hill's prescription diets, mm-hmm. are the direct result of Buddy One in old age developing kidney disease. And oh, requiring wow. um, Dr. Morris, who was here in New Jersey, who developed KD, kidney diet, developed it for Buddy. And she survived long in life because of KD, which is now a, health, a Hills science diet prescription. Wow. Um, so lots, lots of things spun off of the CNI in, in its day. So we were giving away the money. Um, we told people we wouldn't take their money if they gave it to us. Of course, today we kick ourselves in the pants for doing that because <laughs> yeah. as our budgets and everything grows. We wish we had it. Right. Um, but uh, along comes Disney and asks us to uh, be part of a movie venture with them called Atta Girl Kelly. And those of us who are old enough remember seeing Atta Girl Kelly. Mm-hmm. And the, um, Walt Disney Productions really did a decent job 
at portraying the relationship between an instructor and his dogs and a uh, new handler and the dog that he's matched with and some of the struggles other people go through in class and so on. They, they, they depicted our property and our building. Some of it was filmed here, but long story short is Walt Disney introduces the dog and walks with her under blindfold in to be filmed <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. And he tells the whole world that we won't take their money. <laughs> Disney or we talk to Disney about using the movie for something. We say, can you just take that part out about the donations? And they're like, nobody touches Walt. Walt lives on, you know, so we lose, we lose there. But I suspect yeah. some of the impetus for the other schools to get good financial starts was the fact that people were probably disgruntled with us if we wouldn't take their money. So they gave it to other schools that were upstarting at the time, which is just right. fine. Yeah. Um, things changed in the 70s, uh, different leadership in the 60s and 70s. And um, we start an O&M program teaching O&M professionals about guide dogs because there was a riff between the guide dog community and uh, the uh, O&M cane teaching people, O&M yeah. specialists. Um, and we wanted them to understand that we were with them, not against them. Um, so our presidents at the time decided it was good to bring every major college group to the seeing eye before they graduated and give them a, a two-day seminar about what we do, how we do it, and give them blindfolded experience being guided by a seeing eye dog. And, and we've we've carried that torch all these years. We still do it. And, yep. and for a while, we did it remotely. And we're back to bringing those programs back to our campus to do that. Um, so that was six, late 60s, 70s. Um, in the 70s, we're realizing that um, fundraising is not a bad word, and it's, it's <laughs> necessary. You've got to grow the endowment, grow the support. Yep. And uh, we start working on that. Um, and critical to us and some our history and something that changed us forever at the time and put us uh, on the board as leaders in the industry again was the fact that we hired a geneticist. We started using a ge geneticist in the late 70s as a consultant, but we hired him full-time in, I think it was 1984 when I started full-time mm -hmm. here. I, I worked here in college um, doing an internship um, in, I think, uh, let's see, did I come here? It would have been... December of 83. So mm -hmm. ju just short of, of 40 years ago, I first set foot here. Wow. I, I was hired out of college in, in, when I graduated in June of June of, uh, of 84. And so uh, the geneticist Eldon Layton brought to us something that was unique to the livestock industry. Most people who work in, as geneticists um and animals work in the livestock industry because that's where the bucks are, boys and girls. Right. That, you know, for those of us who eat meat, there's they're always looking to build the better cow, build the better chicken, whatever. <laughs> yeah, healthier and so on. And so Eldon came from that background, and he brought to us something called estimated breeding values or EBVs. Mm -hmm. And uh, our concern at the time in the in the early '80s was the number of dogs that we were losing to hip dysplasia. Mm. Um, you know, it was very common in all the large breeds that we used. 
and it was like, crap, these dogs are retiring too young. We've got to do something about this. So um, Eldon used the, the estimated breeding values. Um, and, and I will just simplify that by saying you're, let, let's say it's a 10 point scale, making it up. Cause I don't know whether it's 10 or I can guarantee it's probably an odd number. Eldon probably. Lyle, probably a nine point scale. Yeah. Nine being your highest score and uh, five being the median. And he would assign uh, these numbers to traits, the traits that we were looking for, temperament, health, hips, you know. And so basically he closed the breeding colony, meaning we stopped taking dogs from other breeding programs, from other breeders and worked with the dogs that we had already. Mm -hmm. And we assessed hip scores and health scores and so on, and only bred dogs that had the highest numbers in every category. Okay. Mm. So you're looking for number nines in hips, eights and nines in hips and eights and nines in temperament, you know, and I think it took maybe two years to fix hips. Wow. Unbelievable. About the same time. And that was so early in my career, I was still vet teching here. Um, pen hip came along. That's a new way of, of evaluating hips rather than just doing OFA radiographs. Okay. Uh, pen hips are um, the OFA. If uh, you or I laid on our back, they'd be extending our legs all the way down to the end of a table and then turning our knees in and okay. taking a radiograph of our hip joints. Yep. Uh, the pen hip um, is joint laxity. So the dog is relaxed on its back, knees pushed up almost into a walking position over, over their body. Mm -hmm. And we're taking a radiograph to see how much laxity there is in joint in a joint and mm -hmm. measure that. And we use both those techniques to evaluate our dogs. Um, and, and the, the less laxity is in the, in the joint, the better they are. So, so anyway, we clean up hips really fast. We change temperament um, and we use genetics to better everything we do. In, uh, we also start thinking about not using dogs um, other than dogs that we've bred ourselves for, for many years. My early years up until 1995, we were training dogs that were donated to us. People would donate litters. People mm -hmm. would call and say, I'm moving. We really can't take our dog to our new place. We have a you know year and a half old name the breed. You know, would yeah. you be interested? And if it was a lovely dog, we would evaluate it for temperament and health and put it in the program if if it you know. And those dogs didn't have as high a success rate, but right. there were a lot of great dogs that a lot of people had that were what we called outside dogs. But in '95, we decided we weren't going to do that anymore. That we were going to produce only dogs from our own breeding for our own purposes. Um, we'd had great success with our breeding program, doing the things that we were doing. And we, we felt that our success was so high that we would continue to go forward. At the same time, um, in 95, a person that I trained um, as an instructor, um, I think with his first or second dog, I think I trained him with his second dog, young person, um, called and said, Hey, I was down here in Texas and, uh, my dog guided me into a swimming pool last night. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> you, you and I know, both know Kyle, 
you know, experienced dogs don't do that. If, no. If a dog's going to make a, an error, it's going to be your your ankle. It's too close to the edge, and your ankle slips over or something. But not right. a walk on water. You know. No. So we we had a panic attack and sent him and his dog um, at our expense to an ophthalmologist, canine ophthalmologist, and found out his dog had a a condition called progressive retinal atrophy or PRA, which is similar to retinitis pigmentosa in human beings. Right. Um, and, and one of the first signs is night blindness. So this dog wasn't seeing at night. Um, mm. She wasn't intentionally trying to walk on water. She just wasn't seeing well at night. Yep. And um, it was a Labrador and we went, uh-oh, we got a problem. So we contacted all of our graduates who had Labradors and sent them off to um, to ophthalmologists at our expense to be evaluated because we were terrified that we could be having a dog that was guiding a blind person and the dog couldn't see either or could only see, you know, couldn't see well enough. How's that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> more like it. More like Liter- it. Liter- um, think- literally, literally almost blind leading the blind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and we were very, very fortunate that there were only eight affected dogs. And oh, wow. We asked those graduates to retire their dogs and we replaced them immediately, gave them another dog. Um, And we went to work genetically. Um, We used the services of uh, one of the foremost veterinary ophthalmologists in the world, Dr. Gus Aguirre. Mm -hmm. And he studied PRA through the blood work of our dogs and all the, uh, we, we did electroretinograms on all our dogs and so on. And he actually isolated the gene for PRA, and and we it's not only been identified in Labradors, but most other breeds of right. dogs. Um, he was he has been able to further that success into human beings, where they think they're actually going to be able to do some kind some gene therapy for s- certain individuals with certain types of retinitis pigmentosa. It's going to yep. be able to be fixed, which is just incredible to me so so we get that fixed at the very same time we started crossing labradors and golden retrievers um, because we know but knew by crossing them we were eliminating the possibility of producing pra until that got Mm -hmm. straightened out it was also a a very very popular cross being used around the world very successfully Mm -hmm. we we decided that our breeding kennel um we call it a breeding station in Mendham, New Jersey, which is the next town west of Morristown. It's about ten, uh, five miles away. Um, it was on 100 acres, and the kennels were at the back of the 100 acres, which the properties around us were unoccupied when we built the kennels. But um, people built their mansions on top and started hunting <laughs> dogs. And so our president at the time, Ken Rosenthal, who was a brilliant man, said let's let's be smart about this how about instead of renovate what we've got we look for a property where nobody's ever going to bother us so uh, we purchased a property which we refer to as chester new jersey but it's actually such a big property that it it's three different townships wow property sits in and um it's a barrier facility it's 350 plus acres and the drive into it's a, a mile long and so let me clarify barrier facility. That means the staff, nobody but staff goes in and out. Yep. And um, when they go in and out, they change clothes. So the puppies mm-hmm. aren't, the breeding dogs and the puppies are not subject to disease from the outside world. And 
that's just to eliminate we don't want to lose anybody you know it's yeah. just that important and our breeding dogs um stay in the kennels while they're being used for breeding the the girls are usually retired retired by the time they're four mm-hmm. and the the boys sire 10 purebred litters and maybe a couple crosses if they're a lab or a golden wow. um, so they're out in that facility there's enrichment in that facility um outdoor play yards and agility yards and all kinds of fun stuff volunteers walking them um they work with trainers while they're there their health staff enriches them and so on so that was 2000 uh 20 2001 okay we opened that and um we also took we didn't breed our own goldens up until the time we occupied that facility our Mm. goldens came through us through contracted services with a breeder in Oklahoma who bred exclusively for us. And we had amazing success rates from, with the golden from her breeding. So when we got a bigger facility, we took on the third breed and brought them in house in, in Chester. Wow. Um, about this at the exact same time, um, because remember I said, our trustees are made up of professionals who donate their services in time. Yes. There, we have veterinarians on the board and, you know, Gus Aguirre, the, the ophthalmologist was on the board and so on. Yep. And one of uh, our veterinarians at the time who were on our board suggested we start because of the value of our breeding colony and the genetic information that we've kept for 40 years. They insisted we started keeping uh, DNA on all of our dogs. So all the dogs we produce, we collect blood and spin it down, extract the DNA, and we store DNA on both campuses. So main campus here and on uh, the Chester, on ice uh, in Chester, just in case yep. there's for a natural disaster in either one place, we don't lose that information. Right. So j- just recently, two, I think it's two years ago, uh, the, the years are starting to get fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. Um, they add a new test to the, the, the screening panel that we use for all our breeding dogs, the wizard <laughs> panel. And it's a test for Stargardt's disease, which is oh, also, wow. also causes blindness in humans and dogs. Who yes. we've known. And um, this time we did not have to call grads to find out if their dogs might have it or be affected. We could go to the DNA, locate it, and we knew right away. Um, we had eight affected dogs. Again, same number as PRA. Um, <laughs> Lucky number eight. <laughs> um, the good thing about Stark Arts was um, that it doesn't. It's not as devastating as as uh, PRA. Right. Um, but we notified anybody who had a a dog that was alive and guiding. Most of the dogs were at a retirement age, mm-hmm. and um, we evaluated them all. It was fascinating to me because I worked with every one of the students who could come here or the graduates who could come here with their dogs. I watched them work their dogs in various lights and so on. And then I worked their dogs myself. And it was very telling. I couldn't tell the things when I watched them that I could tell when I worked them myself. It was amazing how they reacted to darkness and bright lights at night and so on. And so, um, Again, we 
advised those folks to replace and most of them were in the process anyway because the dogs right. were older and uh, those dogs retired we were very 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 fortunate in our breeding colony to not have any dogs affected we wow. had a couple carriers and we could we could breed around that just to, to weed it out entirely other programs around the country and the world were were kind of devastated by it and yeah everybody had their own approach to it because it didn't cause complete blindness not everybody felt that it was so critical to retire all the dogs but that's never our stance when it comes to vision we never want you know it's just us um yeah. we don't want to take those risks so so we took sure. that and so we've been able to uh avoid those kind of things um the you know we've seen changes you know the challenges we've seen uh we've seen money market issues um anybody who was alive in the late 2000s you know 2007 mm -hmm. 8, and 10 knows what the stock markets did and what how yep. that was and we watched you know half of an endowment go away and and um, with our expenses staying the same and suddenly we had a position where uh-oh we're going to be defunct in 10 years if we don't fundraise more and, and so on. And so we started fundraising more and yep. expenses continued to grow. And we actually had to do a layoff in 2012 um, to downsize the staff to 150. We had grown from 150 to 200 wow. in a 10 year span from between 2000 and 2010 mm -hmm. or 2009, I think. Um, and, and uh, some of the people, some of it, we just left vacancies through admission. And then there were others that unfortunately we had to let go, which was like the worst thing in the world. Never, ever, ever want to have that no. happen again. But it, it righted our ship, um, recovered us. And since then, of course, the markets have been better. But we always have to be prepared to be nimble um, with money and 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 you know watch the markets and so on yep the uh i would say probably the the that what we called mission forward at that time was one of the worst things i ever had to deal with and and don't want to do again but uh the pandemic was yet another that has just you know drained the lifeblood from a lot of us uh, <laughs> for kept, sure we we um we had a class in residence here in March of 2020. Of course, December 2019 is when we started talking as a leadership team about the things that were going on in the world. And do you think anything's going to happen? And of course, by the time the class was here in March, it was happening. And we had 22 students in residence and four Can of them were Canadians. Mm -hmm. And we heard that they were going to shut the borders and we're like, rut row, what do we do with Canadians if they're yeah. shut the borders? That a lot of it seems funny now. Um, at the time, it wasn't funny. No. Um, so, so we cleaned up that class fast. We got everybody out of here and figured we'd send the staff home for two weeks. We would keep cow staff on and breeding station staff on. And, oh, this will blow over. We'll be back in two weeks. And, you know, as you know. The rest is history. Uh, <laughs> government shut down states and we mm -hmm. couldn't get to work. And we rehomed all our, there were 203 dogs on this campus that got rehomed to their puppy raisers and, and our staff and so on until we could 
train them again. Uh, and we weren't sure how long that would be. It turned out that um, they left here, <clears throat> I guess uh, it was probably right around the beginning of April. We had all the dogs out of here. Yeah. And uh, we started bringing them back to campus on January 6th of 2020. Um, 203 dogs rehomed in two weeks and we brought them back in four weeks because we brought one group of dogs back per week. The most trained dogs until every team had their dogs back of five, I guess it took five weeks, um, brought them back from their puppy raisers. And remember there was no vaccine during these times. So when right. we sent the dogs to puppy raisers, we were launching long leashes through the air to have them catch it, teasing <laughs> the dog, call it to them. And, you know, because we, you didn't know how close you could get to people. There was all right. kind of craziness that we didn't know. And then we had to monitor all those dogs in puppy raising homes while it was happening. And we still had puppies being born that needed to go out to families, you name it. We did stop breeding dogs for the three, four months that we weren't training classes because we didn't want to overproduce. But we yeah. picked up breeding right away again after that and then just stretched our inventory out age-wise so that it would fill in the gaps. Um, but the leadership team learned all about Zoom. Um, we'd never used it before the pandemic. Yep. And, you know, now it's like like the telephone. We use it every day. And yeah. um, so we met by Zoom for hours and hours and hours every day. And we developed a pandemic plan that... I will say served us so well that we got over 550 people through this place without a single case of, uh, of COVID. And wow. uh, we had great protocols and, you know, distancing and so on. And we were back to normal size classes uh, for quite a while. Um, and where are we now? This is November. And I guess it was right after the summer. Um, we let our guard down um, due to pressure. You know, people didn't want to wear masks. Yeah. Our, our, our protocol was to PCR test everybody two to three days before they traveled here. Show us that you're clean and wear a mask while you travel. And the first week you're here in case you pick something else up on a plane. Yep. And it was serving us well. But there were people struggling wearing masks and PCR tests. Very hard to find. Oh, for, yeah. For COVID. Um, it just became more scarce. So we agreed to go with home testing on our system, you know, send us a photo of your home test. And um, we did that for a couple months and then we agreed to just drop it all. And um, guess what happened? <laughs> uh, two months ago, um, we, you know, three days into class, we had somebody and when people were starting to get sick in that class with COVID, they didn't want to tell people because they didn't want to be sent home. Yeah. So they were like hiding their symptoms and so on. And once, once the horse left the barn, um, there's no putting it back in now. There's, there's no, no putting, putting that it one back, back yeah, in. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Nope. So, so we, um, we cleaned it up though. We, we isolated everybody and we're able to continue everybody. We didn't lose anybody's training. Everybody got to finish their training with their dogs. Um, and we got them out of here a bit early because we needed to have the place clean for the next class. So yeah. we, we uh, misted the place entirely with an antiviral after everybody left and scrubbed down and everything. And we're back to, back to keeping it cool again. Um, yep. So we're, we're, what we're doing now again, we're, we're back to home testing and 
three days before class and then yep. masking for the first six days so that yeah. if you can track something, what we did find was that, um, you know, the six days is great, I guess, but with the newer variants, it would appear that you can take up to 10 days. Yeah. Symptoms. Yeah. Um, cause, cause we, but we can't, you know, and some people do choose to stay in a mask the whole time they're here. They're just yeah. more comfortable with that. Whatever floats your boat, it's okay with us. For but, sure. Um, we're back in motion. Um, you know, it's harder and harder. We've, we've, ha we have a glut of people waiting for dogs, unfortunately, because yeah. when you can't serve people for several months and then you have to serve half capacity for a year or more, it backs up the system. So, yeah. Um, so we have a lot of people waiting for dogs. Um, yeah, but I through that. Yeah, I can I can tell you from personal experience. I mean, like I retired my second dog um, at you know in December of 2021, and I waited you know what was it 11 11 months for you know to get my my third dog, and it's well worth the wait. <laughs> from a, oh, from, I a hope that, yeah. from a graduate from a graduate standpoint, it is it's well worth the wait, and you know. I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's one of those, one of those things like, you know, you just, I mean, you walk through the history, like it, I mean, ranging from, you know, starting with, you know, 16, you know, 16 people per class back in the 1920s and thirties yeah. you know, to now, you know, now we're doing 20 to 24 people per class, roughly um, how many, how many classes of, of people come through the seeing eye campus every year? Um, generally, and I say this generally, yeah, ge almost, generally, almost generally. always the 12 classes a year. We, we had a year uh, when we renovated this building and had to um, jump to a hotel for a few months. Yep. Um, I got extra classes in one year. I think we got 13 or 14 classes in yeah. that year. And we used, um, we did an experimental two week class for some retrains where we could squeeze it in, but you know, they're all experiments. They're, they're all science experiments. Yeah. <laughs> we stick with what, what worked the best, really. And, and yep. we, we want to give the highest quality experience for the human and the dog and, and yeah. make it right. And, and so we do what works best. We, we, we make a lot of changes along the way. Certainly, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, our training changes all the time and we evolve with everything. Yeah. But, so can you, can you give us a, you know, a, a short description of how like you know so most people are are pretty aware of you know the general arc of a you know of a guide dog or you know a service dog where you know puppy raised for you know 15 to 18 months or you know some you know, in that range and you know then they come back to the seeing eye how, how do you as the instructor how do you actually teach a dog to guide a blind person well you know, our, our process starts with the breeding. You know, I talked about yeah. that. Um, the, the puppies go to a family. They leave the breeding station at seven weeks, go to a family, and are raised with the family till about their four, about 14 months is when they yep. come in for training. They get a month of evaluation health-wise um, where they're living in a group and, and just being cared for by kennel staff. Mm -hmm. uh, and... So think about the changes in the dog's life, taken away from the mother, go to a family, loved by a family, brought back to a kennel, and uh, nothing but other dogs to play with for a month, right? Yeah. Somebody yeah. taking care of you, but 
no real human connection other than the person who feeds you and cleans up after you every day. And then um, each team of instructors gets assigned a group of dogs. We sign close to 40 dogs for, for a class. Um, and so the instructors pick up their dogs and are all in one kennel. And one instructor will train six to eight dogs. And because they get constant attention every day from the same person and it's training attention, the training goes very fast because the dog looks so forward to the one-on-one -on -one time with the instructor. With the right. So we start out and remember um, our, our dogs wouldn't be any good if they were raised in a kennel until they were 13 months old. So the families that raise them for us teach them to be good, have good house manners as best they can, mm -hmm. teach them basic obedience and expose them to the world, take them places, let them see cars and trucks and trains and uh, go to stores and so on so that they've got good exposure as puppies so that when they're adults and go into training, that nothing's a surprise to them. They come in for training. They have their decompression where they're altered and so on and go yep. through all their medical clearance, get signed to the instructor, get that one-on-one -on -one every day. And the training starts here on the campus. The dog learns to wear the harness, learns to pull into the harness. Mm -hmm. We never discourage the pulling against the collar because then we just transfer that to the body piece of the harness. Yep. Teach them basic commands, how to walk in straight lines and follow curb edges and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, here on campus, and then we go into to uh, into Morristown, and Lucas Frank always used to say, and then we walk in bigger and bigger circles every week. <laughs> um, <laughs> each route builds on something else, so we start out with a simple route, very straight lines, very little clearance. Um, the dog has to learn that it's as wide as itself and the human that it's guiding and as tall as itself and the human that it's guiding yep. and that, that that human and will stumble over something underfoot if they don't stop for it. Yep. So, you know, our, our trainers are great actors and, you know, over time they teach the dog that there's going to be harm to the person if, if they don't stop for the obstacles or clear them on the obstacles. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next route overlaps the first route a little bit. You know, you start in the same place, but you wind and you wind up in the same place at the end, back at the training center. But the route starts familiar and then goes leads into new stuff. And the new stuff on the second route is is clearance stuff. They they yep. learn to clear stationary objects, overhead objects, and moving targets, which are humans on the sidewalk. Yep. <laughs> We start introducing traffic at that point, actually showing them how to stop for a car, how to back away from a car. And we just keep building and it's building blocks and positive reinforcement. Eventually there's some correction for, for stuff that if we know the dog knows the task and isn't doing it or is being distracted and not staying on task, they, they need to you know pay attention to what they're doing in order to keep someone safe. Sure. So uh, we build on all those things. We the it, each instructor, each trainer does a what we call a midterm blindfold, which is a misnomer because the training's fourteen or sixteen weeks, and the yep. mid the midterms at six weeks. It's really not at eight weeks. Right. Um, it's a prescribed route where the manager can you know watch every person on the team with every dog, evaluate the the dogs for where they are, and make sure they're checking all the boxes they need to check. 
it's kind of a report card where yeah. the instructor should be able to look. Once in a while, we say, you know what, this dog is just not a candidate to do this. This isn't going to work, and and we we reject the dog from the program at that point. Offer right. it back to the family first, and if the family doesn't take it, then we offer it for adoption or for work at a different kind of job. Right. Uh, but uh, the vast number of dogs go on and continue training, and then the instructors do what we call freelance training, where they <clears throat> basically could go anywhere on a given day that a uh, handle a blind handler would need to go. You know, trains, buses, automobiles. Um, drop-offs, subways, New York City. Um, part of the, the brilliance of, of Dorothy and Morris getting us to uh, land here in Morristown is that we're less than an hour from New York City. Yep. So we get a lot of New York City training time with the dogs and with our students. And there's no better confidence, confidence builder than being able to go through Midtown Manhattan with a dog um, successfully. So, so Absolutely. anyway, the, the dogs go through all this freelance um, and then they're evaluated again for a final blindfold at around the three month mark uh, before they're matched with a, with a person in class a month later. Yep. And, uh, we, we visit all the people, all our applicants, we visit them, we fly to them and evaluate them in their home area. We want to see what their home area is like and so on, get to know them so we are getting some preliminary ideas about what type of dog they might need. So we have a yeah. lot invested in, in what we do going out to see everybody. And the, every one of the of our instructors um, puts a fair amount of flying travel time in too because they visit applicants and they visit graduates in the field. It, yep. it, it's Look, you're no good if you just watch people do things by the book in class because real life is real life and things are different out on the streets. So it's good to see people in the field and help them in the field and see what it's really like. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And it, yeah, I, I mean, just, you know, having gone, you know, through this, this process myself, you know, a few times now, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, shoot, it was, I, I think I was more stressed um, going through like my, you know, my seeing eye, you know, intake interviews and all that than I was for, uh, than I was uh, going through the onboarding uh, to go to the Paralympics and all that. So yeah. it was, yeah. it, was it, it was, it was intense, but it was, it, you know, but like, you know, it, it's, you know, you know, but clearly, um, you know, the seeing, like you guys are doing incredible work. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a product of that. Um, I think you've matched what over, you know, I, well, I know I, I had the, over I had the honor. Yeah, yeah. I had the honor of being the 18,000th, uh, yeah. representative yep. me and me and Hugh did, um, yep. you know, and so like over 18,000 partnerships in just over 90 years of, of existence. Yep. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, and, and you know, like you said, you know, earlier, I mean, it, it's $75,000 for, to, from birth of the dog to yeah. the time that, you know, that the, the human and dog are, are matched and, um, out the door and, and all that, um, you know, and you, you, you said like you're operating, you guys operate a, a budget of $31 million a year. Yeah. 
I mean, this year, yeah, every year it goes up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every year that, that, that goes up, uh, you know, I mean, and you're, you're servicing, you know, hundreds of hundreds of people each year, you know, you travel, you know, you guys are traveling place. You're, you're constantly having to, you know, stay up to, uh, you know, stay up to date on the latest medical technology, you know, worldwide, you know, stuff going on. I, I mean, Dave, do you have time to sleep? <laughs> I sleep very well most of the time, unless things, unless I've got something to worry about. <laughs> but, you know what? I'll tell you this: I cannot imagine, honestly, spending forty years of my life anywhere else. The the things I've seen and done here, and the friends I've made, staff and students. Um, you know, our grads are all family to us. Yeah. It, what's what you have to understand is so incredibly unique about what we do and all the guide dog schools do is um, the residential training. Everybody comes to us for training. It's rare that you don't, you know, there's the mm-hmm. occasional person that gets trained at home, but you know, 207 people last year on, on this campus trained here and we live in residence with you. So we get to know you really well. Yeah. And, and, you know, I didn't talk about that. The reason that we, bring new handlers here is really because the dog it's easier on the dog and the dog bonds better to the person in a familiar area than they would if we took the dogs to everybody in a strange area there'd be way more stress for the dog and so everybody comes here we spend a lot of time uh, together and get to know each other and you're a young man and look you've been here three times yeah and every time you come back there's a new chapter in your life. And I can think of people, there was just a young woman in uh, one of the last couple of classes who I unfortunately got very little time with, but I trained her with her first dog. And now she's a mother, so <laughs> successful. And she does all these things. And you watch people over these years and we catch up every eight to 10 years. I don't go back to college every eight to 10 years to do something again. You know, no, there's no school I go back to. Yeah. There's a reunion every 10 or something like that. It's not the same, but, but for people to come back for services and spend a good amount of time with us, it's amazing. Amazing. And I think the hardest thing when, when I've been in this position since 2009 and I think, I think the first thing I realized was, wow, this is incredible how many dogs pass away in a year's time. And we acknowledge the death of the dog and condolences mm-hmm. and so on. And I'm writing to people. And then I realized the worst part actually is to see the grads passing away. Yeah. And the, the people that who, you know, I've loved and known for 40 years who were middle aged when I started here. Are passing away in great numbers now yeah and they're a dis- a lot of them are a distance away you know all over the continent and sometimes we don't know that they've passed away until a tribute gift comes in something like that you know somebody sends a donation in their memory yep. and we're like oh my gosh jane doe died um and it's just it's it's the hardest part for me now and and uh yeah it's and we share the information here and there's there's a staff member I call the Grim Reaper because she sends all the, the notes out when some when people pass along. It's like, yeah. can you just stop today and not let us know it's enough? You know? Yeah. 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 It's it's really 
it's really just amazing. And, you know, there's always a third of the people we train are new students who have never been here before. And they're going to be the retrains of the future. You know, that's yep. what keeps keeps us going. So, uh, you know, it's just a really unique, unique place. And uh, we have Dorothy and Morris to thank for that, I guess. And, and uh, <laughs> we, the, the seeing eye has different ways of doing things than any mm-hmm. other school. Um, and and um, I, I didn't touch upon it earlier, but um, Dorothy was firm that when we served students that we would refer to them by their surname because in the early days of our existence, mm-hmm. people who were blind were, were not treated with respect. Right. And, you know, they thought of blind Joe, the, you know, and blind Mary that, you know, you were referred to as blind this, blind that. And Dorothy's like, this is just horrible. It's yeah. Mrs. It's Mrs. Doe and Mr. Doe. So we used surnames up until the 90s. Um, and it leveled the playing field. Sometimes you were a young instructor instructing an, uh, an experienced older retrain. And by using surnames, it you know kept it professional. And um, it seemed really strange when we stopped using surnames. Um, the, the, the only difficulty, I really like the, the first names now, but yeah. the difficulty about it back when we first started, it was like, oh my God, there's three Joes in class or six <laughs> Marys. Which Mary are you talking about? <laughs> right. Or, or even today it happens. They say, oh, you know, Mary in the last class. I'm like, well, there were three, you know. So, <laughs> but, uh, uh, there there was that. And, and uh, we had the tradition of dressing for lunch um, up. Gosh, I don't even remember when we stopped. Mid nineties, maybe two thousand. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, I, I was. I was gonna, uh, yeah, I was gonna. I, I wasn't part of that. I. I think. Uh, I think that tradition stopped just before I came there because, like, that was actually a seeing eye reputation. Like, it was a big reputation, and like my, uh, like one of the. I actually had some. I had some. Uh, I had some. Uh, TVI, I had a TVI try to tell me like, ah, you don't like, you know, you don't like wearing a collared shirt. You're not going to fit in at the seeing eye because they, you have is, to wear a jacket and tie. It was actually there every day. Against, it was used to market against us by the other yeah. schools. They still try to do it. Um, yeah. Part of the reasons why we stopped it. But Dorothy's reasoning was again, the stigma blind Joe, the guy who sells newspapers, you know, needs to be seen and because she was always having guests at the seeing eye for lunch which yep. we do today too yep. and they were people from agencies all over the country her her belief was that your next employer could be meeting you at lunch and yeah. you should present yourself well so ladies wore dresses gentlemen wore jacket and tie and the instructors we all wore blazers to lunch we had to go yep. change for lunch yep um, and uh, my that that's where my memory is escaping me. I can't exactly remember when we let go of the dress up, and I think it was the early two thousands, probably. And it's okay; it served its time. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it, it definitely well, um, it's, it served its purpose, it, it, and I think it, to a certain extent, it you know while we you know while like while we don't have to wear jackets and ties and you know be fancy, you know at the you know at lunch anymore at at the seeing eye um there's still a 
like I, I can I can say from a you know for for me as a as a graduate like I feel a lot more respected and like I know that there is an expectation that I represent the seeing eye brand I represent Absolutely you do yeah I I you know I every time I you know step out the door every time I have this podcast every time I'm traveling abroad I I you know even if I don't have my dog with me I represent you know, the seeing eye brand and, you know, and that the seeing eye brand is, is my brand and, you know, I'm the seeing eye brand. So it's, so that's, so I I think that part really resonate, resonated with, with, with me. Um, And like it, I I think what it, what it did was it, it, what you guys have, have been able to do is really have instill this pride in your, in your graduates um, you know, you know, it, like, I mean, I'm, I, I can't see myself ever going anywhere, but the seeing eye to get, you know, to get a dog because like, I'm just, I'm a proud, like I'm part of the seeing eye. And like, I just, I can't see myself going elsewhere. Yeah. And you know, there's 13 schools in this country. Yeah. We're not the perfect fit for everybody. I acknowledge no. that our bar is higher on vision loss. Um, you know, we our our bar is not so low that we just accept legally blind because somebody who's legally blind today was driving yesterday, right? Um, so they still have a lot of vision, and that doesn't work so well for us. It untrains the dog, and and in our opinion, you know, we may be serving somebody who has too much vision when there's another person who really has none or less that would, you know, benefit from better safety. So yeah. our, our, our bar is pretty high looking for a 10 degree field or less and, and you know, varying acuities and so on. Uh, yep. our, our job is to make people safe and enhance their lives. Um, Absolutely. Dog, you're, you're supposed to enjoy working with a dog. Um, and if, if you've got too much vision, the dog actually becomes a hindrance rather than a help. Right. It's just, we, we know that from experience. So yeah. we, we want to make people's lives better and do the right thing for people. And I like to think that we always take the high road and, uh, you know, we, we have such passion for what we do and um, we just want to do the right thing. It's, it's about integrity, having integrity sure. in the decisions you make. For sure. And like, I will go, we'll, we'll start wrapping up here soon. I know you're a, you're a busy man. You got, <laughs> got people to people to call dogs to dogs to yeah. train and humans yes. to train and all that yeah. but uh but but i did uh, like like let's go ahead and circle back around um yep. because i, I want to just touch on um one you know one one particular thing um sure. you, you did you did mention um earlier that you know when when the seeing i first started um you know grad you know, people that wanted to get a dog paid $150 uh, for their first dog and $50 for every subsequent, um, dog. And and we've carried that tradition on to today. Um, even though like, you know, back in the 1930s, it was costing, you know, 450, $500 to fully train that, you know, dog and pair. Now it's like we said, 75, 75 to $80,000. I I, Um, I can go back in receipts actually and records where they paid $300 for a dog back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Uh, Why, like, you know, why keep that 
tradition going. And, and now also, I, I, sh- I should mention that um, military veterans only pay pay one dollar. Um, yeah. So so why why carry on that tradition? Um, and you know, can can you highlight the importance yeah. of that? Because a lot because a yeah. lot of schools a lot of schools get the dog for free. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I I think we still believe what Dorothy believed that it, everybody should contribute to their training, yes. um, to, to the rehabilitation of the time. But beyond that, I think we treat things better. We respect things more when we contribute and, and pay for them. Mm-hmm. And these lives are precious. And there's a huge investment from so many angles. You know, there's a puppy raiser who's invested here and there's an instructor who's who loves the dog and has trained the dog and then there's the grad and and we want to make sure that you know by by a person making a contribution towards this that there's a mutual feeling that they've actually they're getting their money's worth for what they've done and and in today's terms fifty dollars isn't much of anything i mean no. think about what it costs you to buy groceries today you can ruin that <laughs> by nothing oh um, exactly so and and a dog is a commitment you know there's if if you can't afford the 150 or 50 dollars you probably can't afford to own a ci dog right and, and care for it properly um the the you know i talk to people all the time and about rainy day funds for for veterinary expenses and so on because you know, I have a lot of animals myself, and veterinary medicine is very expensive today. Oh yes. So you have oh, to yes. you, you have to plan. You you have to be ahead and, and plan. So so that's part of the part of the the charging philosophy. Yep. Yeah. And you know, let's go ahead and you know just we'll go ahead and and wrap it up here by how, like look how can people like let's, let's be clear. You are taking donations now. And like, we're like, we're all about fundraising now. And, and we're, you know, we're, uh, you know, this, this episode is going to drop on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So, uh, you know, a week leading into, you know, into to giving Tuesday, but you know, this, this, this last kind of month of the, you know, month plus of the year is, is a big fundraising time. Um, if, if people want, you know, if people want or have the financial means to, to give to yes. the seeing eye, how can they, how can they do that? And what's, what's the best method of, of going the, about doing that? The easiest way is to go to our website, seeingeye.org. Um, and there's a million ways that, you know, it's, it's very clear how you can donate to us there. Um, if you call here, we have an 800 number, 800-539-4425. Um, switchboards open 8 30 to 5 p.m mondays through fridays and you can speak to somebody in the donor and public relations world if you'd like to make a donation um, but most people do it electronically they go online yep um, yeah y- you know i guess our goal if, if if we had a goal it would be to be able to run the program solely off donations and not touch the endowment so the endowment can continue to grow for the future yep. and since the pandemic so much has changed and there's not one of us who doesn't realize how much expensive more expensive everything is and 
one of the things right now is dog food in yeah. Spain, the, the, the increase in price in dog food, like $30 difference from two years ago. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and, and that's something we have no control of and we're not going to cut it short. And we, we pay for the puppy, the dog food for our puppies, you yep. know, so we're feeding 500 puppies out in homes and 200 dogs in training every day. So, so there's a lot of money that goes into what we do and, and the veterinary expenses and so on. And our goal would be to offset the, the, the cost as much as we can over time so that the endowment continues to grow to support the place. Yep. Awesome, Dave. Well, I just uh, like I said before, I, like my, like my confidence and like my pride in being a seeing eye grad is, you know, just through the roof. Like I, like I know that, you know, you guys will have to go out of business and uh, be completely wiped off the map and out of memory before I, I go to any other school personally. <laughs> uh, well, you, you, guys know, are, you guys are the right fit for me. Uh, well, what I'll tell you, Kyle, is we have stayed true to mission for 95 yep. years, just yep. short of 95 years, you know, I'm yep. too short. And that's unusual in this world. Um, many, much of our competition has gone off in different directions and pursued other things beyond just training guides. Yes. And, and we're sticking with what we do best. Um, yes. That could change over time. It could change over time. If the world changes, we're going to have to change. Sure. But right now we're dedicated to doing what we do best. Yep. And, and that's training CNI dogs and matching them and follow up, um, you know, and keeping people safe. Yep. Well, Man, Dave, like, you know, you and everyone at the seeing eye, you know, all the, all the grads that have come before me, all the, all the people that have come before us, man, just thank you a million times over. And, uh, you know, I, I <laughs> we, we barely even got to touch on, you know, you know, your, you know, your career arc and, and stuff. So, uh, when you, uh, yeah, what we'll have to probably have you on uh, another time you know, next next year or another time to uh, go through your own personal, you know, your personal journey more more closely my, because my, it's pretty journey, pretty incredible. I have it, you know. Everybody's got a story here. Yeah, I'm just a little piece of the puzzle. You know, yeah. this place is bigger than any one person, and it, if I was gone tomorrow, there'd be somebody who could take over and and run this ship cleanly, and we'd be fine. Yeah. Um, it's just an, uh, the way we're set up and the way we've planned for the future. So, but um, it, it's been a great run. I've, I've really enjoyed all my time here and, and I love talking about it. I just, awesome. you know, I love the place and I love talking about what we do what we do. And I love talking about our graduates and, um, and I'm really proud to know everybody. Absolutely. We've Absolutely. Well, ah, uh... Man, we could we could go on talking forever. Like I we I know could. we could because we it, we have before. True that is. True that is. <laughs> but uh, I'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap it here. But you know, everyone, I think just you know, I, I've talked about the seeing eye so much over the over the course of my you know my life and in my talks and you know my podcasts and everything. And you know, I, I dedicate an entire chapter in my book to the seeing eye and, and my my journey through getting my first dog there and i i think and i hope that through hearing you know dave speak about just the history that you guys now have a better understanding of, of how 
the seeing eye has helped me keep an eye on my vision. And, and please guys, if you do have the means head to seeing eye.org, uh, click that donate button and, and find, you know, and if you have, a, if you have the means, please give. Cause I, this is one of the few organizations that I, I will always give money to every year. I'll find, I'll find some spare change under the couch to, <laughs> to give, <laughs> but thanks Dave so much. Right. And oh, thank you for having me, Carl. Absolutely. And uh, as always, everyone, keep an eye on your vision. Thanks so much, Dave, for coming on the show and sharing all about the seeing eye, the history and what you guys are doing today and moving forward. You guys, I don't know <laughs> if I am the person I am today without my seeing eye dogs. Um, they have given me just the, the confidence and have empowered me to live a life without limits and to keep an eye on my vision. Um, you know, it's it's one of the most important um, aspects of my life, and it and the seeing eye is one of the has had one of the biggest impacts on my life as a as a totally blind person as a totally blind adventure athlete and um, you know I just you know, can't thank the seeing eye enough for the work that they have done and the work that they continue to do and the work that they're going to continue to do uh, moving forward so if you have it in your means this year please uh, go to seeingeye.org uh, learn more about them. Uh, give a little bit if you can. Um, you know, every little bit helps, as you uh, as you heard from Dave in the in the episode there. So, and uh, if you guys want to, uh, I mentioned it in the episode. But if you want to check out what it's like to be a seeing eye uh, student, uh, go pick up a copy of my book, Discovering a Life Without Limits: How Cancer Took My Sight, Blindness Gave Me Vision, and the Mountains Let Me Live. I uh, dedicate a whole chapter to the seeing eye and uh, my time there getting my first guide dog. And uh, guys, if you want to continue to follow my journey, uh, please do so by following me on Instagram or Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at Iron Kyle. That's E-Y-E-R-O-N-K-Y-L-E. And on Facebook at Kyle Kuhn Speaks. Uh, and if you guys want to have a more direct impact on me and my journey uh, to the Paralympic Games, please visit USA Triathlon dot org slash kyle coon that's usa triathlon.org slash kyle coon uh you guys thanks so much for your support of the podcast uh, i sincerely hope that you guys are getting um a lot of great info out of this and, and if you are enjoying it please um you know if you're open to it go over to apple Podcasts, leave a review um let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you would like to see changed, all of that stuff. I really do value your input. And, and if you don't want to leave it on, on Apple uh, Podcasts, send me an email, kyle at kylecoon.com. Uh, I love hearing from you guys. I love getting your feedback. Or you can just shoot me a, a message on uh, Instagram or Facebook as well. Never hesitate to reach out. Happy Thanksgiving to all of my fellow Americans. And as always, Keep an eye on your vision.